All right, welcome, guys. Welcome. I guess you need to have a seat. Uh, it's, it's so awesome to have you all here. Uh, wow, it's, it's been so cool already. We're going to do some ridiculous stuff this morning. It's going to be a blast. Uh, but I want to look back for just one moment. Uh, because the cool part about this year is that we've tried and we've experimented and we've done different things uh, with this thing called church. So uh, first off, the first weird thing we did was we dedicated an entire Sunday to Stranger Things, the television show, where we did the theology of Stranger Things. Um, actually, that's the most mad you guys have gotten at me. <laughs> All the other stuff, I still have a job, but that one, yeah. So we did that, and then we did a, a, a conversations um, series where we literally got a panel of people up here with a moderator to start talking about issues that we realized we weren't talking about in church. And rather than have me just talk at you, we had either experts or people just from our own community come up and talk about things uh, like stages of faith. Like we had a skeptic up here and then someone who's a longtime Christian. And then we even did politics. I mean, we, talk, we had a conservative person, a moderate person, and a liberal person on the stage talking about what it means to engage with politics and faith at the same time. And goodness gracious, I still have a job. So, I mean, this has like been a crazy cool year. And I think kind of the culmination of all of that was when uh, Hurricane Harvey hit, uh, we were just beside ourselves. A lot of there are people in this community who are from Houston. Uh, so we began praying through uh, the board and I did about what, what we could do to possibly react to something that devastating. Uh, and I just felt God telling us we need to give away 100% of what we take in that Sunday. That's online giving. That's like stuff that we'd already planned on getting. That's a, like a quarter of our entire income for the month. I just said, no, we need to give it all away. And then that's the first time we ever talked about giving in this room. And I asked you guys to be generous. And this little church sent $5,000 uh, to help the relief there in Houston. I mean, that, and that just blows me away. And that's also thanks to an anonymous donor who said, hey, I want to match this gift, which is even crazier. So we got up to $5,000. That's the kind of stuff we can do when we come together. That's why we're better off together than we are alone. When we utilize communities like this to actually be good news in our communities, then crazy, crazy stuff is going to happen. So I truly believe in this medium, the local church, as the hope of the world. Because if we can really get down to what this is, and it's not about rules and regulation and who's in and who's out, and you got to say this, and you got to do this, and you got to dunk in this water in this particular way, none of that. What it's about is the love of Christ coming in and permeating the community. And what I hope we are known in this neighborhood as is a church that's just obsessed with the love of God. The church that is all about the love and kindness of God. So this morning, we're uh, going to talk about water. And we're going to talk about a couple things. We're going to talk about um, Paul McCartney, SpaghettiOs, water, and the Bible. And not necessarily in that order. And the SpaghettiOs story is a real, real doozy. Um, but the reason this is happening is we're going to be talking about the power water has, our relationship with it through the ages, and what it means in Scripture. Because this morning we're starting a brand new series called Context. Do we have that slide of context there? Maybe we can't go back. There it is. Um, what we're going to be doing is taking the weirdest passages in the Bible. I'm talking like the part where the donkey talks weird. Like We're going to take on the strangest stuff that when you encounter it in Scripture you go, why is that there? Like, how did that make the cut? There's a lot of beautiful like, language, the stuff we read at weddings, the stuff we read at funerals, but like, 
why is this other weird stuff in there? Why are there wars depicted in the Bible? Why is there sacrifice depicted in the Bible? What is this all about? And so what we want to do is provide some context for it, meaning like if we pull these verses out of context, we're, we're creating ammunition. We're creating little hand grenades that we can use when we choose, and we're not looking at the grander story. Because what we're going to find out this morning, and as we unpack this series from now until Advent, until Christmas, is that we are a part of a much, much larger story. And the story begins with water, and the story begins again uh, with water. So what we'll do is we'll go through this, and we'll look at weird stories through the lenses of poetry, history, timing, and culture. Poetry, history, timing, and culture. And today, we're going to look at a couple stories in that light. Um, we're going to talk about the power uh, that water has over us. So let me pray for us as we get started here. Uh, God, I'm just blown away by this morning. Um, there's so much uh, that we have to say. There's so much that we have accomplished. I, I just pray that the main focus of this morning is that we get to hang out. And as important as this moment here with the sermon and the worship is important, the moment where we get to go out there and eat and drink together uh, and growing community is just as important. So I pray over both of those things this morning. Amen. Um, so, again, uh, this water is actually created by our extremely talented friends, the Palmers, up in the booth. And there's going to be, for those of you with ADD like me, there's going to be a lot of stuff happening back here. And I do not blame you if I see your head kind of going like this. Um, we're going to be animating what we're talking about this morning, and it's going to culminate in something really, really fun. Um, and Bobby is painting uh, this wave, which is going to be explained as we talk about water. So about two years ago, I went on a trip to Mexico, um, and I went with a group of guys. It was for a buddy's uh, bachelor party, and we were on our way back from Mexico, and I, I just chose the best car in the world because none of us spoke any Spanish, like not even a little bit of Spanish. So we're on our way back, we're in the border, and if you've ever gone through the border in Mexico, it is, it is an experience, right? Like you could sit there for hours and hours and hours, and the people come try and sell you stuff, and you're just like, you're jammed there. So we saw that, and then we saw this other line that seemed to be moving rather quickly. Like, oh, this one, this one, look, this is the obvious choice. And the name of that will always haunt me. It's called the Sentry Line. If anyone if you ever going through the border, avoid the Sentry Line at all costs. Basically, we get towards the thing, and two semis pull up right beside us, and there's no way for us to turn around. And we're stuck there for a minute, and the traffic stops moving so like, fluidly, and now we're, we're stuck kind of in the same way, but it's a much shorter line. And we begin to realize we're the only like, four-door car in this line. There's a whole bunch of big semi-trucks and pickup trucks and all that kind of stuff, but no other car that looks like ours. And so finally, like, we, we try and wave one of the guys down, and he spoke a little bit of English. And we were like, Where, is this the right? And he just like, looks at us, and he's like, oh, man, you guys are in for it. Uh, and so we're, we're devising a plan. We all take out our passports. And we're like, we'll just get to the front, and we'll, we'll plead for mercy, because it's beginning to get grim. Uh, we get up to the front, and luckily it's a younger guy, and he just looks at us and he's like, what are you guys doing here? Uh, we hand him our passports, he's like, no, I can't take those. He's, Do you know what this is? And we're like, no. He goes, well, this is the sentry line. Dun, dun, dun. And the sentry line means that each of you have to pay a $5,000 fine because none of you have this pass. And the pass was designed so that these trucks could get in and out of Mexico. You have to apply like five years in advance for this thing, and we had somehow found ourselves in the middle of the line. And we were just freaked out of our minds. And he goes, well, you know what? You might not have to pay it, but you're definitely going to have to go to Sentry. We're like, what is Sentry? Sentry is where they take all the people they really should be pulling over <laughs> and place them in holding and have like, the police dogs come and ravage your car and go all throughout it. So we're sitting there for like four or five hours, and my phone is about to die. 
So I fire off one quick, seemingly lovely text to my wife saying I'm stuck at the Mexican border. Phone dies. That's the only information she has. And we're there for five hours after this. And that's because my buddy, who fell asleep in the car because it was taking so long, the dog comes around and comes to the front seat, and the police dog comes up, and it's not, you're not supposed to touch these dogs. Like, that is a big no-no. He awakes from his slumber, grabs the dog by the face, and says, puppy! <laughs> and then they're like, that's it, out of the car. We're out of the car. They're like pulling up cushions. I mean, it was, it was grim. Meanwhile, in Santa Monica, my wife is, is thinking I, I may have been abducted. She doesn't know what's going on. She can't get a hold of me. She doesn't know any other people in the car. And so she's stuck with this one piece of news and absolutely no context. And I, I get back across the border, plug in my phone at a jack-in-the-box, and it, it lights up with close to 70 text messages and just more, more phone calls than my phone even wanted to count. It got to the point where they just put a little number next to the phone call, like it didn't list it anymore. And when I finally got her on the phone and I explained the story, there was this moment of like, what went from fear just became like a little bit angry at me and then that's normal, and then moved on to just like, oh, thank God I understand the story. Thank God you're not hurt, but thank God I, I know. I was just left with this headline. Just this one line, that's all I have. And the danger in that, those headlines, our imagination is so powerful. We can begin to think up the craziest things Right? And when we only have a small bit of information to guide us and it's out of context, we can do things that are terrible with that headline. Speaking of headlines, I follow, um, uh, is anyone on, uh, what's, what's it called, neighborhood or, um, it's, it's the neighborhood like online thing that's called a patch. It's local news. <laughs> and boy, is it local. Uh, and they send me emails every day with the headlines, and they are just like the most sensational things for local, like local, local news. Like it's only supposed to be in your neighborhood. And the last one, like, like about two weeks ago, said human remains found in construction site. And am I not going to check that out? So I, I click right away, human remains found. As I scroll down, it's the last story in a, like a bunch of just irrelevant news. And then when I get to the bottom, it tells me that it wasn't, in fact, human remains and an autopsy later reported that it was cat remains. So I was, one, duped out of a good story, and two, like, didn't need to look at that. Um, well, the point is, these, these headlines and these stories, we need the whole story. A headline grips us and it pulls us in. It wants us to know more. But if we never get to the point that we know more, we can be walking around life thinking that there are human remains at the mall across the street. Or we could be walking around life thinking your husband is abducted at the Mexican border. Like all of these things are possible because if we never get to the true story, we're, we're not getting to the goods. We're not getting to what actually drives this engine. I think the coolest uh, language in the world is sign language because somehow without words, they've kind of figured out language better than we even could. And, and this is the sign for story. I looked this up. You can find it on Google. <laughs> I'm not a pro. Here we go. It goes like this. Right? So in a, in a sense, what that says is that a story is like two things coming together, and then we leave space in between. The beginning, the end, and the space is what is most important. See, what sign language gets that we don't always understand is that it's not the beginning and it's not the end that matter the most. It's the journey in between. It's this space. But a lot of times we kind of operate like this, right? 
Beginning, end, bing, bang, boom, there it is, we're done. When actually, there's this huge, mysterious middle part that's the most important. I think in our faith, we have a tendency to just take this part or just take this part and ignore this big, endless depth in between. And what happens when we do that is we live in this tension. This tension, it's all right here because we're not giving it space. That space is actually named in the Bible, and it's this incredible metaphor uh, because if you are an ancient uh, Jewish person, ancient Israel living, you're living in sort of a desert climate, right? And so when you encounter water, water is this miraculous, mysterious thing. You gotta remember, they didn't have the technology to get down to the bottom of the depths of a body of water. So when you look at a body of water and you see like the sea, you're thinking that thing is limitlessly deep. It has no end. And not only that, you're scared to death of it. Because water has this power to either, if, if a little bit sprinkles down, your crops are going good and it gives life. If too much of it comes, you flood and it brings death. And more than that, it's murky and we can't see what's at the bottom. That idea happens in the very, very beginning of Genesis. The way our whole story starts is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the, the spirit wandered over the depths and the waters below. So even before there's a creation narrative on the first day where God creates light, there's water there. And what that means is that water is the blank canvas. Water is your starting point. Water is the trampoline that jumps you into the story. Everything that happens from here on out is going to happen outside of this mysterious depth. Water. Water is the, the cursor on your email screen on Monday morning with that rough email you have to send. Water is the guitar to the songwriter who just looks at it and it scares the living bejesus out of him. Water is the blank page to the poet. It's where everything begins. And in the Bible, whenever we encounter a body of water, we have to pay attention because something is about to change. Whenever the Israelites encounter water, whenever the early Christians encounter water, it's this, it's this moment where you have to go, oh my goodness, something big is about to happen. Something huge is about to shift and change. But here's the deal. In our spirituality and in our faith, we have been taught a lot of times just to stay at the surface of that water and not understand that the scary deep is actually the thing that we are supposed to be embracing, that scary, crazy depth is what's really meant for us. And there's so much in there and we don't have to always live in the tension. That surface, that surface area on that water is what I wanna call headline Christianity. And I'm gonna give you the best headline that there ever was. Uh, it's the most famous verse in the New Testament. It's John 3.16 and it says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. Now, I read that verse, and if you're asking why I'm a pastor and I had to read that verse, because you have to have that memorized, it comes from a very long, long, tenuous relationship with this verse. Let me tell you a story. I'm about, uh, I must have been like five years old. I remember this so vividly. I was in Awana. Does anybody know what Awana is? Awana is like a uh, Boy Scouts for Christianese people where they make you memorize verses, and if you do, you get a treat. So, 
I had memorized this verse, and this wasn't just a treat. This was like badge night. It was in Sparks for Jesus. <laughs> and uh, we had this like sash, and I was going to get a badge because I had memorized this very verse, John 3.16. And I'm sitting there, and a caveat to this story is before I had left home, my mom didn't have a lot of time to cook dinner, so she gave me a bowl of cold SpaghettiOs. Now, that sounds cruel, but I loved cold SpaghettiOs. I'm talking like weird gray meat in there, loved it cold. So I had scarfed down this huge bowl of SpaghettiOs, like the whole can, me, tiny five-year-old, amped to get to this badge, amped to get in there, and I get in there, and I'm front row and center because I'm about to get my badge, and I'm going to be on a stage, which for a person like me was all I needed in life. <laughs> so I'm five years old, I'm going to be on a stage, I'm going to get my badge, yeehaw. Then I start feeling the said cold spaghettios. They've come back with a vengeance. And I'm sitting there, and I'm five, and I begin to sweat, and I know what's coming, like it's not going to be good, and I think, well, I could get to the bathroom, but then I was like, but well, they could call my name, and I'm not going to get my badge. I'm not going to get my treat. So I'm going to sit here and wait this, ride this wave out. Two more minutes pass, and I remember I had this like, kind of friend that's sitting right here, and he's trying to chat me up, and I'm like, honestly, I can't pay attention to you. I'm sweating. I'm about to throw up, and I need to get my badge. And he's talking, he's talking, he's talking. He looks the other way, and all of a sudden, just like, <laughs> SpaghettiOs everywhere. <laughs> like, not subtle. But in my mind, I still want my badge. <laughs> so I stayed seated and just thought, Keep it cool. You just need to buy a couple more minutes, and no one will find out. The kid next to me betrays me and screams out, Ugh! I'm immediately swooped up by the closest adult, and I just remember having this feeling of like being carried on a shoulder, and I'm like this away from the badge. Like, I was like, I'm good now. I threw up. I'm done. Like, we can get this over with. So part of me really does not like John 3.16. Um, <laughs> And it's a, it's a wonderful verse. Listen, it, it encompasses so much. And I think that's why it got such a legendary status in our minds. It sort of, it tells us the story of what happens in like a, a little tiny line. But here's the problem. When we just pull John 3.16 out of a hat and give it to someone, we're not giving it to them with any context whatsoever. And so questions for someone who's never encountered faith of any kind begin to erupt, and there's really no way to answer them because all you've given them is this one line that literally says, you will not perish. What does that mean? Because right before that, it says, like, I won't perish, but I'll have everlasting life, but I will die. So how does that work? And then there's a son. God has a son. What's the son deal about? I thought God had children. We were all children. It, all of these questions begin to unravel because we have zero context for where this comes from. I always joke around, my, uh, my best friend in the world, Daniel, uh, his dad is this remarkable human being. Uh, he's just very matter of fact, like hard worker, owns like a, a house painting business, and just like by the book guy. Uh, and the way that he came to Christianity, and this is so much like him, he literally saw a tract on a table that said, do you know where you'll go when you die? And he opened it up, and John 3.16 was in there, and he closed the pamphlet and just said, that's for me. <laughs> Done. That was it. That's all it took. He's like, okay, yeah, I get it. I want to point out the fact that that man had lived through some of the most tumultuous times in history, and that life was a fleeting thing for him. He's seen death. He lived a pretty peculiar life. I mean, he's seen a lot of things, and so the prospect of someone telling you what's going to happen after you die was very, very compelling because that was his context. That was the context that he was coming from. I think the fresh voice in the church right now 
needs to be less about what happens when we die and more about what happens right here, right now in our life. John 3.16 is a wonderful verse, but I would call it a poor invitation because it falls short. It's not the whole story. What, who is Jesus talking to when these words are said? What's the context behind it? What's the verse before it? What's the verse after it? Why does he feel the need to share this information? And we look at this story, it's actually fascinating. Jesus is visited in the middle of the night, and the scripture describes it by night, by this religious leader named Nicodemus. This is just verses before this. And Nicodemus comes up to Jesus, shrouded, trying to avoid all the other religious leaders, because what's happening in Nicodemus' heart is this crazy, like, war inside. He's wrestling with all of these different issues. Because this guy, Jesus, represents something that's absolutely unraveling everything that he thought about his religious tradition at the time, and even his vocation, because this was a religious leader. If I follow this Jesus guy, I could lose my job. But for some reason, I can't stop thinking about these words that he says, and I can't stop thinking about the life he's leading. So he visits him in the middle of the night, and Jesus and him have this deep, deep conversation where he literally just looks at Nicodemus and he's like, hey, I understand that you're a religious leader and that you're used to getting this stuff, but that is actually what's in the way for you. He describes this process of you need to be born again. And Nicodemus takes that literally because in the Bible up to that point, if you, it said you slaughtered a bull, you slaughtered a bull. So he looks at Jesus and he's like, what are you talking about? And what he didn't realize is that Jesus was using as one of our context key components here, poetry, poems. He's saying you need to be born again. Basically, you need to rethink everything. Everything you thought was true, you need to rethink and reorient because there's this new thing called the kingdom and I'm inviting you into it and it's glorious, but you're going to have to change a lot of your life. A lot of your comfort is going to shift. And Nicodemus walks away from that situation not being able to fully commit because that version of Christianity, that version of faith, it wasn't even called Christianity then, just didn't line up with the regularity in his life. It called him out of comfort and into the uncertain waters, into the deep. That's why I love this water metaphor. If you step into the ocean, it's gonna take you. You are on its terms. That's why we say we ride waves, we don't drive them. When you step into the ocean, you step into the grand possibility of everything, but you have to be willing to let that thing toss you around and for Nicodemus, he was used to driving. And what Jesus offered him is you're going to have to step into this deep and it's going to be uncomfortable and it may toss you all over the place. But if you trust in this moment, it's going to be worth it. You're going to experience something brand new. And that's what context gives us. We see that John 3.16 comes right after this Nicodemus story. But here's... John 3.17, which is sort of like a Donnie Wahlberg verse. Like, he's still around, but we don't need to talk about him all that much. Um, John 3.17 is what I want to guide our entire church. And not just me, but the board came up with this as our seed verse. We're looking at John 3.16 in the context of John 3.17. And when we read John 3.17, this is the part that makes us a little uncomfortable. Let's read what that has to say. Right after the most famous verse that I lost my SpaghettiOs on, God says this. I'll read the whole thing. 
It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. God, this is verse 17 now, God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world. Some translations put that condemn the world. He did not send him to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Do you see the difference in those two verses? One is all about what happens after, and it creates an in and out type of language. You've ticked off all the marks, you can come in. And you get your treat. <laughs> the other one, however, calls us to everyone and says that Jesus didn't come here to separate us all out. He came here to literally speak into our lives and say, look around. The kingdom of God is at hand, and everyone is invited. You're invited. That's a better invitation than hang tight for life insurance to kick in right at the end. Just a better invitation. When Jesus is asked to describe what this kingdom is like, he often uses the, the, the metaphor, the poetry of a party. When they ask him, like, what, what is this kingdom of God like? Well, he, he tells this story about this king who throws this crazy wedding feast. He's having a wedding. His son is getting married, and this is his chance to just, like, blow it out. And he goes to all of his friends, everyone he knows, all of the people who should be invited. And when he goes out there and he invites all of these people, they all come back to him with first world problems. It's remarkable. If you read this parable, it's so good. They come back and they say, well, I just bought a new farm. I'm going to have to take care of that. Like another one's like, well, I got family in town. There's, there's all of these different, very relevant things that would keep us from actually coming in to something. And so what the king does, the God character in this poem, he says, okay, go to every street corner. Go outside to everyone who normally wouldn't be able to come into this party, but I'm throwing a party and everyone is invited. A party. I'm not throwing a wake. I'm not throwing a religious service. I'm throwing a party and everyone is invited. That is the good news. But so often we just look here and we forget that there's this huge, big, mysterious, deep, and it's really easy for me to talk about this stuff, right? Everyone is welcome, la da da Because in all honesty, a lot of faith communities do. Come as you are, everyone is welcome. But it's actually a little bit harder than you might think to truly be all welcoming. The people that you don't really hang out with at any other time, you step into a church scenario, and all of a sudden, they're a part of your family. How do we do this? How do we take the first step into actually becoming a community that puts its money where its mouth is and really says, all of you are welcome and embraced? How do we do that? The answer is in Exodus. The best story about water in the whole Bible. Moses uh, has just freed this nation of slaves. The Bible describes this as God hears the cries of his people and he sends this stuttering man named Moses to come in and release them from slavery into the promised land and into freedom. And it's a fascinating story. It's the Ten Commandments. You've heard it all. I mean, it's, it's huge. We're going to skip past all the really glorious stuff. We're going to go to a really weird part in the story. At the very end of this narrative, after the ten plagues have hit, and they, they, they bring them out, there's a, 
there's an army after them, because Pharaoh has changed his mind. He says, no, 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 I actually, I really dug that slave labor. Now we're going to have to start paying people. Go get them back. <laughs> so they make it to the Reed Sea. Now, it's translated Red Sea a lot of places. That's not true. Reed Sea. Reed Sea has so much significance and so much poetry behind it, because if you remember the story of Moses, if you've ever seen that fantastic movie from the 90s, which he's in, they throw the little baby down the river in the reeds. And he goes through the reeds in this tiny little ark that his mom has made for him, and Moses is protected in the water amongst the reeds. So when God pulls his entire nation, his baby, out of Egypt and places them near a sea of reeds and a body of water, we need to pay attention. So they get to this, they get to this body of water and they're looking at the water, which again, to these desert folks, is scary. There could be monsters down there. I would rather go towards the army than jump into that water. And they begin to frantically, like, just blah, freak out. And Moses is standing there, and he even goes to God, and he's like, God, what do you want me to do? And God's like, hey, just chill, tell him this. So he goes back to the people, and he says, hey, everyone, be calm. You need only be still, and the Lord your God will fight for you. You need only be still, and the Lord your God will fight for you. That is terrible advice. <laughs> there is an army coming, Moses, and there is a sea right here. The last thing I want to do is be still. But they do it. And then Moses turns right round, and the waters split in two. And what used to be deep and mysterious and totally unavailable, they are now walking and touching the very depths of that body of water. And they are seeing the mystery. Because they understood that being still is all about context. I don't think that this line, be still, is sort of a keep calm and carry on. No, I think it's look around. Look at what God has already done for you. Do you really think that everything's going to fall apart right here? Be still. Understand where you're at. Some of us are in a place in life where we're transitioning over to something new. That's exactly what water looks like in the Bible. Every single time they cross a body of water, something brand new is going to happen. And what Moses is calling his people to do, is he's like, understand that God has you exactly where you need to be. Understand that in this collection of people, not just you, not just me, not just George, but this collection of people, be still. You have a community around you. Understand your context. And he walks right through. And that line always reminds me uh, of one of my favorite bands of all time. And this is a real shocker. They're called the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> I've loved the Beatles. My dad introduced me to the Beatles at a very, very young age. And uh, we shared the characteristic that we both went to go see Beatles Love in Vegas. Because, yeah, we're going to do that. <laughs> uh, and we went to go see Beatles Love. We both cried. <laughs> that in, that's just them playing the tracks, guys. There's no live music. There's not, they're just <laughs> dancing around. And there's a speaker in your ear. And I'm like, God. <laughs> In 1970, when they were in this extreme time, uh, just this tumultuous relationship with each other, it was not going to work out. They're recording this album called Abbey Road. And they would record it even, I mean, it got so bad that they couldn't even be in the studio with each other all the time. So they would have to go in and record different parts and all that kind of stuff by themselves. And then we got this one last beautiful piece of art out of it, but it was just, everything was falling apart. 
And on May 8th, 1970, Paul McCartney fell asleep and he had a dream about his mother. Uh, and his mother was very tragically taken away from him uh, by cancer at a very, very young age. And he sees his mother and his mother just says, Paul, let it be. Let it be. In this moment of transition in your life, you don't know what's going to happen next, let it be. And so Paul went back to the studio and he wrote one of the most incredible songs of all time called Let It Be. But here's the craziest part about this song. When they originally went to go record it, the original line was, um, Mother Mary said to me, there will be no sorrow, let it be. There will be no sorrow. That was the original line. But when Paul went in to record it, his producer took issue with that line, and they talked it out, and they decided to change it to there will be an answer, let it be. This is so cool when the Beatles can teach us things about faith, right? <laughs> there will be an answer is a better invitation than there will be no sorrow. In this ridiculous year, we thought 2016 was bad. In this ridiculous year we are having right now, it's not comforting to walk up to someone and say, hey, hey, hey there will be no sorrow because they may be sitting in the middle of all that sorrow. The better answer is that there will be an answer. Let it be. Be still. Let it be. So we have at the beginning of scripture, the water and the spirit hovering before creation happens and everything is about to change. And then in the Jesus story, after Jesus rises from the dead, this is a moment where the, the disciples are having to believe in faith that he's still around. They're out fishing, and Peter, who's sort of the most brash one, who goes on to be the first leader of the church, sort of a firebrand, and he's out there, and he's fishing, and they see Jesus on the banks, and immediately, Peter does the weirdest move ever. He puts on clothes, and he jumps in the water, and he swims to shore to find Jesus. He puts on clothes, and he jumps in the water. This is the same Peter that Jesus called out of the boat to walk on water, if you've heard that story. And now, because Peter understands exactly who Jesus is, he no longer needs the miracle of walking. He wants to jump right into the mysterious deeps, right into the danger, and swim to shore to encounter the one he knows is his savior. And that is crazy town. We have at the beginning of the Bible, the waters, the deep, hovering over the surface, and then we have the leader of the first church, essentially the church, diving headfirst into that water as a way of saying, this is how the story began, and this is how a new story is beginning. One began on the surface without any understanding of what's going on, and now you have the understanding. Dive into the deep water. And I want to invite you guys to do that this morning, to dive in to the water. We are going to watch something that encompasses what I think this community is all about so beautifully. And it was made by the Palmers who are in the booth. And we'll clap for them after because it's very worthy of clapping for. But I want you to understand that I'm inviting you into a space in this community and in any church community. If this is not your home church, find a home church just stoked for you to be a part of this thing called church. But I promise you, if you're here, 
We're gonna do everything we can to take the burdens that you walk in here with off of your shoulders and help you jump into the water. That's our whole hope. So with that, let's, uh, let's watch this.